Bob was talking about how it's hard to believe that it's 2016 already. And usually, you know, it takes us a while to get in a rhythm of writing 2016 or whatever, the New Year's. And we find ourselves still writing last year. Well, for some reason, I have had a habit of actually skipping 2016 altogether. And I've been writing 2017. So if I have done it on a slide or anything anywhere, uh, I have already found one design this week that I did that I wrote 2017. It's not intentional of skipping a year, but for some reason... Uh, my mind is doing that. Well, thank you for worshiping with us this morning, for gathering with us this morning. It's exciting to have all of you here. It's exciting to be here with you. If this is your first time, thank you for gathering with us. We are a community that is simply just learning to live and love like Jesus. We ask that you stop by the welcome desk. You can pick up a small gift there that just tells you a little bit about our story. But more importantly, we also want to get to know your story. We just want to be able to shake your hand, ask what brought you here today, and just get to know you a little bit. We are journeying out of a busy season of a whole bunch of holiday celebrations and gatherings, and maybe some of us are beginning to box up our traditions and our decorations, and we see that this weighted season full of activity is beginning to finally draw to a close. We have finished our Christmas series, The Advent Conspiracy, but even last week in Bishop Keith's sermon, we found a glimpse of the Christmas story and its long-lasting impact as he talked about what it means to recognize Christ within us. This morning, as we climb out of this busy season, we are once again going to just tip a hat to to the Christmas story as we remember that it's Epiphany Sunday, and we are going to talk about that in a little bit. But as your season settled down, I hope you are experiencing that they were full of joy but most importantly, that they've been full of Jesus encounters. This morning we are going to be looking at a series in which I've entitled Extravagant Dimensions. This morning we acknowledge the Christmas story briefly as we remember and discuss that what many liturgical and mainline churches call today is Epiphany Sunday. It's a Sunday in which we traditionally celebrate as the last week the last part of the Christmas story. It's the part of the story where we are reminded of the Magi's visitation to Jesus as he was there in the care of Mary and Joseph. The Magi were most likely distinguished foreigners. They were kind of spiritual-seeking vagabonds who were very spiritual and philosophical seekers. They studied the stars, and they were not of any Jewish descent or heritage. But rather, they were actually from the eastern regions. That's why we sing, we three kings of Orient are. They were not people of a Jewish background. But here in the Christmas story, we see the kingdom at work. We see the extravagant dimensions of God's love already begin to break through. And this is what we celebrate today. We celebrate that these three magi show up on the scene, these three vagabond spiritual seeker types and realize that that baby or that toddler, whatever, how old he was when they finally get there, that is God incarnate. They can look into the eyes of Jesus and realize that yes, God is here. These people, these outsiders had access to God. That is what we remember on Epiphany Sunday. It was on this day that these Gentiles, these non-Jewish believers, saw the manifestation of the Messiah in a baby Jesus. When they saw him, they knew they had encountered God. And it was not from anything that they had been taught, 
but through the revelation of the Holy Spirit. We see this take place in a biblical story in Matthew 2.11, where it says, They entered the house and they saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and they worshipped him. We so easily overlook this story. These people who knew no knowledge of what a Messiah meant for the Jewish people came in and were floored in worship before this baby. This morning we celebrate together the discovery of the Magi. Discovery that Jesus is more than for the Jewish believer, but rather for all who believe. That we outsiders with dirty hands get to actually play and experience the goodies of the kingdom. We get to taste and explore and plumb the depths of the extravagant dimensions of God's love in the same way that his special people were invited to. Before we read our scripture this morning, I invite you just to to bow with me, to pray with me as we just invite him to bless the reading of the word and just to be present in it. Lord, we just ask you to, to bless the reading as we look into your word, that whatever it is you have for us becomes evident. Whatever we think this passage says becomes secondary, and that we just find you present, and that each one of us walks away with something that is going to change the way we live. Something that is going to draw us closer to you. Thank you, Lord, for being here. Amen. This morning we are going to be reading out of Ephesians 3. It's going to be on the screen if you don't have a Bible with you, but if you'd rather read it in a Bible and you don't have a Bible with you, there's a Red Pew Bible in front of you, and it's going to be on page 1157. So if you want to join with me, I would invite you to read along with me. As you're looking that up, I'm just going to give you some prefacing, some background information to this story. Here, the Apostle Paul is writing this letter to the followers of Jesus that are in the church of Ephesus while he was in prison in Rome. Paul was arrested for the fact that he believed outsiders could become insiders, and not only outsiders could become insiders, but they were as equal as the insiders. And even though he's in prison, Paul has continued to proclaim that outsiders and insiders are equal in the extravagant love of God. He continues to write to the church in Ephesus, sharing with them the deep revelation that the good news of the kingdom was equal for Jew and Gentile, insider and outsider. If you have time this week, I encourage you to just mark in your Bible Ephesians 2 and 3. Paul start, I mean, uh, yeah, Paul starts talking about this in Ephesians 2, and it just kind of gives some background information that we won't be able to look at this morning. But I encourage you to explore it and see the deeper revelations of God's love. Paul used this letter to cast a vision to the church in Ephesus, a church that was much bigger than they saw, a, a church that they A church that he knew needed a story that was much bigger than what they saw in play. It's actually an inclusive story about the extravagant dimensions of the love of Christ. See, the church in Ephesus was twofold. It was part of it was you know these these Jewish followers who had experienced the baptism of spirit. They had become followers of Jesus. They were on the right path to tracking after the Messiah. But then there was also this whole flock of Gentile believers that were present in the church, and the two just did not get along very well. Paul's letter is addressed here to the followers of Jesus who were the Gentiles. You see in the beginning that it says, I'm writing to the Gentiles. Something else to remember 
a funny lens of this is not only were they getting along because insiders didn't think the outsiders should be insiders and the outsiders didn't know why the insiders liked them. Something else that's funny is we tend to think of the Church of Ephesus as meeting in a big church building. But where did they meet? They met in homes, right? They met in small social spaces. So two groups that don't get along very well are meeting in very intimate spaces and personal spaces. So there's a bit of a tension happening here, right? We can recognize that these two are in a very tense place. But Paul specifically addresses in chapter 3 the Gentiles from a place of commonality he has with them. Follow along as I read Ephesians 3, 1 through 13. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. In reading this, then, you'll be able to understand that my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the people in other generations as it is now, been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and shares together in the promise of Christ Jesus. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given me to preach the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages has been kept hidden in God, who created all things. His intent was that now through the church the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you therefore not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are for your glory. Now I don't know what grabbed you as you read that or if any of it... uh, brought any emotions to the surface, but there are two things, two reasons that really preface Paul's, this part of Paul's letter in Ephesians 3. Two things that he really is trying to drive home. We call them Paul's reasons. The first one is a missional explanation. Paul is really pushing out to the church, to these church in Ephesus, that he has been called to missionally share the extravagant love of Christ with outsiders. He admits that he briefly wrote about this earlier, but he hasn't really had the chance to push it out and explain it to now about how God has orchestrated this whole thing. How God has made him the prophetic proclaimer that Gentiles can become insiders. The second thing that Paul begins to explain in the beginning of this is some theological implications. Paul wanted his readers to understand what the theological implications were of outsiders becoming insiders, of understanding his insight into the mystery of Christ, which has now been revealed by the Holy Spirit. The equality to accessing the extravagant dimensions of Christ's love has huge theological implications. That's what Paul begins to push out. As we look at this passage this morning, I want to push out some ideas that I think we can take away from this passage. If you have a bulletin with you, you also see there's some spots in there. 
I encourage you as we, as we go through these takeaways that you just fill in the blanks. Kind of also put them somewhere we're going to read them this week and just kind of chew on them. I think we don't always grab everything on a Sunday morning. Then by next week we're on another topic. So I invite you just to take your notes home and begin to chew out on what God might be saying to you. What message takeaway resonates with you? Hopefully today we will walk away with some challenging insights that will affect us theologically and missionally. The first thing we see in this passage, one of the first things we can't help but notice, because sometimes Paul gets labeled in a bad tone because of this, Paul is passionately excited to be part of the extraordinary secret of what God is doing. If you missed that Paul was really excited to be part of this, you probably should read the scripture again. Because he didn't say it less than like 12 times, right? Paul is really excited to be part of this. Paul sees himself as someone who has just been left in this, on this extraordinary secret. Oh my word, this, is, this has been a missing piece and I just got privileged to know what it's all about. He's passionately excited about that call. He was an outsider himself that experienced extraordinary love, that experienced extravagant love that transformed him and brought him from being an outsider to an insider. It transformed him and his mission. This letter is full of excitement. In each line we see Paul is using excited language to describe how lucky he feels to be part of what God is doing. That secret was equivalent to Paul as telling, as we might say, telling someone they just won $2 million. That is how excited Paul is. Man, I like $2 million. That'd be a really fun investment to win. Pretty good inheritance. But Paul is saying this. This inheritance is as equal as that. This is really exciting. In this passage, Paul is so excited to be part of what God is doing that it just oozes over him. In fact, even though it understands, it undermines everything he knew through the Jewish narrative, he is so excited by it, he allows that to overwhelm him and to say, okay, I am okay with change. I am okay with moving forward with a new narrative because I am so passionate to be involved in what God is doing. Man, sometimes we misread Paul's tone. But I think Paul is actually just a bold extrovert. I think Paul and I might actually have a few characteristics in common. I think he comes across strong because he's so passionate because of what he's doing. God has chosen him, who he does humbly say was the least of all the Lord's believers, who is a servant, who is a prisoner. He continually reminds us that he's not much, but he's so excited to be part of what God is doing that he just comes across strong and bold. And some reason we like to misread Paul. We like to give him a bad rap and kind of say that he's just this kind of hard-nosed bully that is just too bold. But man, what I see is passion. In fact, I actually see a passion that we probably are lacking too much as a church in a Western context. In fact, we tend to view those passionate types as uncomfortable. We tend to think of them strange and we find them as too much to handle. As a result, we are quick to actually oppose all passion in the church. Why? Because often, passion equates to change. Paul's passion in this passage, equates to the changing of a worldview, a theological understanding, and a kingdom eschatology. 
All of it is going to change. But Paul is so excited to be part of it, he doesn't care about any of that. Man, do we have that kind of passion? Do you and I have that kind of passion to be part of this story in that way? Second thing we see is that the extraordinary secret was seemingly innovative at the time, but was God's blueprint from the start. That extraordinary secret was that God had always intended to bring all of creation, including the outsider, the non-Jewish peoples of the world, into reconciliation as creation to its creator. That has now been accomplished by God through Jesus, the Messiah. God had intended this from the very beginning. In fact, you could read through the old prophets, you can read the creation story, and you catch a glimpse of that. But in this time, in Paul's time, it was missed. They didn't see it. So it felt new, it felt innovative, it felt like something that had been hidden and revealed just now for such a time as this. Though it was God's blueprint from the beginning, it was all feeling new and innovative. Paul is so passionately excited to be part of it. He is loving to write to the church in Ephesus and just saying, this is something new, this is something great, we need to get involved in it. Paul's probably also apostle type. And he's just like saying, let's go, let's go. But what we see is actually it's also God's blueprint from the start in this passage. In a story of extravagant love, in a story of exploring these extravagant dimensions of God's love, we see that the outsiders with the dirty hands get to come in and play with the goodies of the kingdom. They get to take daddy's Ferrari for a drive in the same way that the Jewish people have been waiting all their life to. This was so uncomfortable to the Jewish believers. So Paul is passionately vision-casting this new narrative to them, trying to get them excited about playing with people that were so different than them. He wanted them to see the bigger story. I hope we see God's extravagant love so passionately that it actually feels innovative to us, that it feels new to us, that it drives us with this energizing passion because it feels so new and refreshing, that it hasn't become old hat. Even though it's been the blueprint all along, man, do we sit every day in a place that says, today God's love feels so innovative. The third thing we see through this passage is that God willingly revealed his heart and plans through the Holy Spirit to the apostles and the prophets. We see that God willingly revealed this news of his extravagant dimensions of love to those who were listening. There are historical hints through the prophets of old, especially Isaiah, that show that this was always the plan. God once again revealed this extravagant dimension of his love, the thing that they were missing through those who were willing to listen, the apostles and the prophets. God also revealed it to Paul, who was called to be the one who would take this out missionally to the world. Paul knew the law and the text, but he didn't arrive at where God wanted him through head knowledge. In fact, all of his knowledge drove him through head knowledge, to the complete opposite of what God was actually wanting of him. It took the Holy Spirit kind of flooring Paul on his journey on the road to confer, conform Paul to what Jesus wanted of him. Paul has now become the prophetic announcer of this very extravagant love in which he encountered on that road. Those passionate people, by the way, that we often view in our 
churches as uh, kind of strange and out there, those people we like to undermine, tend to be the apostle and prophetic types. They are uncomfortable because they aren't afraid to change things. They are uncomfortable because, you know, they're always on to new ideas. Yet Paul shows us that often those types are hearing new layers of the extravagant dimensions of God's love that many of us have not even considered prior. It was the people who knew this was the plan. The people who were willingly listening. As we said earlier, this passage shows us that the extraordinary secret was God's good news and goodness was available and accessible to all who believe. It put the outsider on equal terms with the insider. They were now equal heirs. They share in the inheritance of the kingdom and its good news. They have equal access to Jesus. This meant everything that God had promised to the Jewish people through Abraham and through the minor prophets and through the major prophets, that all of a sudden these outsiders who really had no part to play up to now get equal access to that thing. And that was the most uncomfortable thing. That our neighbor who is sitting down at Chansey's Pub this morning drinking because he's going through a divorce actually has equal accessible uh, ability to, to Jesus and the kingdom as we do, the faithful elect who are gathered here on a Sunday morning. That is the uncomfortable reality. As I said earlier, those outsiders with dirty hands were now considered equal heirs to the extravagant love of Christ. And the Gentiles, the Jewish people thought, you just wash your hands at least seven times before they got to play with the goodies. But Paul is saying, no. They don't need to do anything. In fact, they get to just belong. Let us not forget that those outsiders in our neighborhoods, in this neighborhood of East Petersburg, which we have been investing a lot of time, are equal heirs to the extravagant dimensions of Christ's love. And we are called to be the bearers, like Paul was, to them about this love. An extravagant love that equals the playing field. Just because we are gathered here this morning doesn't make us better than those who are not. Jesus' message levels the playing field with accessibility. N.T. Wright concludes from this passage this quote, Gentile Christians aren't simply to be second-class citizens. They are to be the limbs and organs of the Messiah's body, just as Jewish Christians are. Simply put, what we see Paul illuminating in this passage is what we've been called to believe and live out, that Jesus is Messiah of the world. That he's not Messiah of our church, that he's not Messiah of their temple, he's not Messiah of the Jewish people or the Christian people, that he is actually Messiah of the world. This is what Paul is pushing out in this passage. This has huge theological implications, ones we do not have time to look at today. And Paul pushes them out in his letters to come. It means that Jesus is not just the Messiah for you or our church But it means Jesus is the Messiah of our neighborhood. Jesus is the Messiah of the Muslim people. Jesus is the Messiah over all oppression, sickness, death, and any other oppressive thing or authority that you can name. Jesus is the Messiah of all of that. Have we lived out and proclaimed that Jesus is Messiah to our Muslim and unbelieving neighbors in a way that Paul is so passionately doing? This is the core of Paul's theological implications on this page. Jesus 
is the Messiah of all. A vision so contagious that it takes two opposing groups and puts them together and makes them play together. It makes them play together in a way that actually makes them stand out and speak the wisdom, manifest wisdom of Christ in the world. The expressive fruit of this message is that all become unified in the call and the accessibility of the kingdom and the church. In other words, Paul takes the outsider and the insider. And he equalizes. I mean, Jesus takes the outsider and the insider and he equalizes them. And from that, the mission of the church is launched. From that, we see one of the most directive passages on what the reason for the church is. It's through the church that God longs to tell the world that their time, their way of living is up, and there is a new way to live and a new way to love. There is a new way to be human. That the societies and social structures that they have are actually flat and boring and outdated. The church is to be, by very fact of its existence, a warning to them that there is actually a better way. We do not reflect that wisdom today. In fact, if anything, we have taken a step back and become that flat societal structure rather than a prophetic proclaim of the wisdom of Christ. We don't have to look around the building very often, very long to realize this is true. What is representative here today are people who are very common to each other. We have lots of things in common. We look in common. If you would look at our neighborhood, we do not reflect our neighborhood in any way. We are not speaking to the social structures or the government structures in any prophetic way because all that we've done is continue to upkeep social structures. Paul is saying Jesus is bringing together opposing groups to put this prophetic wisdom in the world. Man, I want to reflect that. And T. Wright continues. The heart of this passage is verse 10, which is one of the New Testament's most powerful statements on the reason for the church's existence. The rulers and authorities must be confronted with God's wisdom in all of its rich variety. And this is to happen through the church. This is why. Paul is so excited to be part of this, to be able to bring these people together, to be able to put on display God's wisdom and God's kingdom. This is what we remember on Epiphany Sunday, that these magi who were outsiders saw Jesus. We are those outsiders. This is our story. This is our story into extravagant dimensions of Christ's love. Paul is aware of the message in which he has been entrusted with. He owns it. That's why we think he's kind of Bold sometimes, but he also carries it humbly if we are listening. In the world, there are pioneers and there are settlers. Pioneers are the first people to walk through the doors, and the settlers are the ones that follow thereafter and set up shop and make things really comfortable and fun. Paul is not a settler. Paul is a pioneer. Paul is the first one through the door getting to proclaim this exciting, extravagant dimension of Christ's love. And as we know... Pioneers are always the ones that die with the arrows in their back. Where is Paul writing this letter from? Prison. But he actually says, don't be distracted by the fact that I'm in prison for you. Let it rock. We're good. I'm excited to be here because I'm so excited about my mission. 
Paul uses specific language to show that he humbly accepts this extraordinary mission. He says that he's just a servant. He's the least of the Lord's people, that he's a prisoner in Christ. In fact, he humbly accepts his role in a way that he's okay with his sufferings in prison and doesn't want others to be distracted or sorrowful for him. But Paul also uses language that shows he's confident of his call. This is where we see Paul boldly owning his mission. To show this, he uses language like, the grace was given to me. To make plan, plain to everyone the administration of this mystery. Understanding my insight. To show that he is owning the mission God has gave him. I hope we can all hear what God's mission is in our lives and whatever he's called us to. And I hope that we can own it with a deep passion, but with humbleness. One that honors each other and each other's call. One that looks to the person to the left of us, and even though they might be a stranger or different than us, that we actually honor their place here too. Hey, Gentiles, honor the Jewish believers. Hey, Jewish believers, honor the Gentiles. We need to do the same thing this morning. We need to look and realize that we are called to own our missions, but we are also called to live it out humble and in a way that honors our differences. If there were two groups in the early church that were opposing each other and needed to get along, if we surveyed our church and many other Western churches, I'm sure there'd be no less than 12 groups that are learning to play well together. But when we do, when we learn that the simplest confession of who we are, that Jesus is Lord, overrides everything else. When that becomes our passion, that Jesus is the Messiah of the whole world, when that motivates us, when that passionately excites us, what we see happen is that people who didn't get along before can honor each other in such a deep way that we actually put on display the kingdom of God. That is exciting. That is something exciting we as the church get to be excited about. That is what should be driving us into the pews and uh, whatever else we gather in, in this church. Just that is what should bring us here and say to us, that is why I'm here. Because I want to be part with these people of our shared mission, what Paul calls the extravagant dimensions of Christ's love. Paul just explained to them that all the missional and theological understandings of God's extraordinary love at work but he also wants it to, them to experience it. He had firsthand knowledge of it, and he wants the same for them. And Paul ends this, this next section here with, uh, in Ephesians 3, 14 through 19, with a prayer. A prayer in which he prays over his readers that he desires for Jesus to deeply dwell in their hearts, that they will explore the extravagant dimensions of God's love, and that they feel the impartations of Christ in them. I'm going to read... Paul's ending prayer. I'm going to read it from the message translation only because I love the way it captures the love of Christ. It's on the screen if you want to follow along. My response, Paul says, is to get down on my knees before the Father, this magnificent Father, this Daddy who parcels out all of heaven and earth. I ask Him to strengthen you by His Spirit. Not a brute strength, but a glorious inner strength that Christ will live in you as you open the door and invite him in. Hey guys, you get to play, you get to have peace of the kingdom, but I want you to experience it so you're excited about it. And I ask him that you both plant your feet firmly on love. That's what it always boils down to, right? It comes back to the extravagant love of God. That you'll be able to take in with all followers of Jesus the extravagant dimensions of Christ's love. 
Then Paul says this. Reach out and experience its breath. Test its length. Plumb its depth. Rise to the heights. Live full lives. Full in the fullness of God. He mirrors Jesus when Jesus says the kingdom is at hand. This idea that the kingdom is right here within reach. That we can just reach out and touch it. It is actually physically there. It has been inaugurated. It is there. The same thing is what Paul is proclaiming about the love of Christ. It is right there. You can actually reach out and experience it. Through this prayer, Paul celebrates all of this through a powerful prayer. A prayer of confession, invitation, and blessing. He starts by confession. You know, as I look at what I've been called to, I can't help but kneel down. Then he invites us to experience the same love he has and gives a blessing that he entrusts the Lord to do it. In that prayer, Paul asks for the Spirit to empower us so that we, we may discover the heart of God and its depth. Paul's prayer is all about what it means to know God as the all-loving, all-powerful Daddy and putting down roots into that love, both for the insiders and the outsiders. Far too often we have made the extravagant love of Christ just something we accept in our heart. We talk too easily about knowing the love of Christ in our hearts, a love that could actually bring two opposing groups together in a way that manifests the wisdom of God to the world. Through this passage, we are reminded of the larger story, a realization that God is at work in a context much bigger than the story we see and own here at East Petersburg Mennonite. A realization that our individual experience with the extravagant love of Christ is to be read within the larger picture of the membership of a family that confesses Jesus is the Messiah of the world, a membership that is available equally to everyone. If we are truly worshiping with God, we will continue to hear whispers of God that will fill us with a passionate energy to explore these extravagant dimensions. To be able to experience whispers that bring about new missional possibilities. Whispers that bring about new kingdom tasks. And most importantly, when we press into this love, even the energy it takes to accomplish those activities will be poured out on us. Let us catch the passion for the bigger story. It's what we're remembering today on Epiphany Sunday. Explore the extravagant dimensions of Christ's love. Reach out and experience the breath. Test its length. Plumb its steps. Rise to its heights. Live full lives, full in the fullness of God. An experience that is available equally to everyone. I invite Jonathan to come back and lead us in our closing song. And I invite you to stand and to just invite God to continue to reveal himself to you and new dimensions of his love that you can test and feel and plumb the depths of his extravagant love. Also ask that he just reveals to you a bigger story than maybe one you're seeing now. A story that can bring opposites into an honoring relationship with each other.